0: Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about helping people engage in the love of a fiercely relational God. Good morning. Um, I am in John 21. This is the final chapter of John 21. Um, If you haven't been with us, you can go back and listen to all of John. We've been in John eight months. I just looked back and went, oh my goodness, we started our little building on South College Road. So we're going to be tying it up. I'm going to do half of John 21 today and half of John 21 um, another week. So uh, let's see here. I also want to look into the camera and just say good morning to anyone who's joining us live on Facebook or on YouTube or is uh, listening to us in arrears. We are grateful that you're part of our growing uh, community as well. So I'm in John um, 21, and we are about to read about a group of guys. Does anyone know what they're going to do? Has anyone read ahead? There's a group of guys, and they're going to go do something. Somebody said it go fishing. Okay. So <laughs> I am a terrible fisherman, true confession, but I wanted to start and make us laugh with a fishing story. Um, I told you a couple of weeks ago about how Abby caught the only 20 inch flounder or 21 inch flounder, um, on the dock with a bunch of guys fishing. It was a great moment. So here, here's how it goes. Cause we're jumping into Peter and John and all the guys going fishing. We went flounder fishing four times. Okay. Time number one was uneventful. I caught nothing. Time number two, I got my line stuck on something, and I proceeded to rear back on it, you know, probably like a 15-year-old teenager, and guess what happened? Bam! My rod broke. Now, to make matters worse, it was my dad's fishing rod. I felt like a 12-year-old boy that broke his, you know, his dad. So I had to go to the store, buy a new fishing rod, um, and, and so there we go. So I, I had it all set up. Uh, time number three, Abby catches a 21-inch flounder. Who's caught a flounder this month? Come on, let me see. A couple. No, man, very few of us. We are not a fishing church. Last month. Thank you. Thank you. Last month. Two days ago. Um, Okay. Time number four. We went fishing. Here's what happened. I get to the dock. I cast the net. I get some minnows. I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I'm okay with my cast net. I bait my hook. Um, I throw it out there a couple times. I'm talking to Abby. Our two kids are running up and down the dock. And there's this one little guy who keeps going, what are you doing? What are you fishing for? What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? What's the smallest fish you've ever caught? What are you? And I can't even answer before he hits me with another question. He's this little guy. He's right here standing next to me. And then my, our kids are running up and down the dock. And so anyway, I bait my hook this one particular time and, and it's a spinning rod. So you got to flip the bales to, to cast it, you know, and I feel pretty good about myself because I cast really far, you know what I'm saying? So I, I flip the bale and this guy's like, what are you going to fish for now? And we're, I mean, questions are just coming at me. So I, I rear back um, and, and I go to throw um, this, this big cast and I have a two ounce weight on the end. And apparently I didn't cl- uh, flip my, my bale. So what that means is this little 18-inch leader goes swinging, and all of a sudden my rod jerks. Can you guess what happened? Right out of my buttery fingers. And the kid's sitting next to me, and he goes, you just threw your rod in the ocean. Why did you throw your rod in the ocean? How are you going to get your rod back? Why did you do that? And guess whose rod it is? My dad's, I'm this 41 year old man standing on the dock, having just thrown my rod in the ocean. And with everything in me, I do not want to turn and look down the dock because my wife, who is a wonderful fisherwoman, is no doubt watching. I can feel her eyes on me. And slowly I turn and look at Abby. And she looks down at me and says, Are you kidding me? Is this a kook slams video? Is this a qualified captain video? I wish I had that, those are Instagram handles for people who make silly mistakes like I just made. And so I am standing there going, oh my goodness, we're in about eight or nine feet of water. So I proceed to walk down onto the dock, take off my shoes and sunglasses, and I begin to get into the water. And this little boy's going, what are you doing? You're getting into the water. Are you gonna go get your fishing rod? How are you gonna get it? You can't see, you don't have goggles. What if a shark eats you? I mean, he's just just going after him. So I swim over and I swim down and I'm like groping on the bottom. I can't see a thing. I open my eyes. I can see about eight inches and I'm like crawling on the bottom trying to find my fishing rod. And I come up and this little boy goes, no, 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 no. You're looking in the wrong place. It's over here. And I go, well, I have nothing to lose, right? I mean, my pride's gone. People are on the dock watching me throw my fishing rod. Now they're watching me swim, trying to find my fishing rod. This little boy's yelling at me. I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to listen to him. I swim over there, swim down, groping on the muddy bottom. Guess what I found? My fishing rod. My fishing rod. I am not much of a fisherman. I'd like to be. My wife's the fisherman in the family. And then my dad was in... Italy for five weeks. He returned the last day of flounder season. Guess how many he caught in one one setting on the dock? Four. Two. <laughs> Two. Anyway, there you go. Ah, it's good to have some fun. Um, we are going to jump into John 21. We're going to look at these guys who go fishing. The reason I even tell you the fishing story is because this is a very controversial fishing trip that the disciples are about to have. Okay? There's a lot of theologians who want to go they're in disobedience. There's other theologians who go no, they're just doing the next right thing. So here's what I want to look at this morning as we sift through John 21 is I want to look at how do I know that I am in the will of God? How do we know? And we're going to look at the lives of the apostles, we're going to look at how Jesus interacts with them in this passage, and obviously the, the, the pivot is that you're going to go from the apostles, um, from the Lord Jesus, and who are you going to begin to look at? Me, You our lives. So that's the question that I want us to begin to wrestle with this morning is, am I in the will of God? How would I know if I wasn't in the will of God? How do I know if I am in the will of God? And if we are in the will of God, how can we continue to just run that race as hard as we can? Sound good? All right, let's read. I'm actually going to pick up on the last couple verses of John chapter 20. I'm actually going to pick up at John um, 20, 27, which we actually did last week about Thomas. Um, Jesus said to Thomas, verse 27 of chapter 20, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. You can go back and get a whole theological treatise on that if you'd like. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, being Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, one little tie up here. John 1, 1 and 2 begins with, in the beginning was the word. Who's the word? Jesus he was he was with God and the word was God he was God in the beginning and through him all things were made the book comes to this dramatic conclusion when Thomas says my lord and my Notice, it begins in the same spot, and then some 20 chapters later, it all comes to that same dramatic conclusion. Jesus is Yahweh God, Creator God, Lord of the universe, God of heaven and earth. Make sense? This beautiful sort of full circle thing that is always happening, um, I believe, not only in Hebrew, but in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, uh, you may have life in his name. We could have, like, preached a whole sermon on this, but I see two things coming out of that. We as a church and we as individuals and we as the church uh, across every border is to be about both helping um, Christians in their discipleship journey and helping people who don't know God come to faith in him. Does that make sense? That's the dual purpose, not only of the church, of this church, of the church, um, um, but then all, as all of us of believers, to, to uh, moving forward in our own discipleship journey and then um, leading others who don't know him towards faith in him. So here we go. Chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas. Now, who was Thomas? The doubter, right? But we called him truthful Thomas last week, not Thomas the doubter. I don't like Thomas the doubter. Uh, Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples who were together. So there's seven of them there if you count all those guys. There's seven, and likely seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen. I think that is very interesting because fishermen are largely a surly lot. You ever fished? Yeah? Well, just saying. Verse verse 3. I'm going to go out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went straight out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Okay, a couple, couple little things. Uh, lots of the fishing on the Sea of Galilee at this time actually happened at night. And as I understand it, they would take the boat out, and many times on the bow of the boat or on one side of the boat, they would hold one or multiple torches, which would act almost like a false moon, and it would draw the fish up to them. And then there would be someone who would throw the net or they would set the net. Occasionally, they would actually spear the fish as they came up to the boat. Make sense? So what we immediately know here is that this is a very legitimate passage. It's also written by someone um, who was an actual fisherman. I didn't tell you that I got up at 3 a.m. and went out and fished, did I? And in this passage, we see they get up in the middle of the night or they, they start at night and they're heading out. They're real fishermen. This is actually how you fish in the Sea of Galilee. Now. Let me also pause here um, because I think this is worth saying. The disciples were, uh, where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem, okay? Um, uh, By the way, if you're new here, if you've never been here, if you're not even a Christian, if you're new in your faith journey, just hang on and join us today. A lot of this is like family stuff, people who are in in the faith, in the journey, in the way. Um, And we'll give you an opportunity at the end to give your life to Jesus if you'd like to do that. Um, But so, where was Jesus crucified? On a hill in what city? Jerusalem, okay? So now these guys have journeyed from Jerusalem all the way back up to Galilee. That's a number of our uh, travel, probably by foot. Um, This is where many of them are actually from. So here's the question. Were they in obedience or disobedience? Were they in the will of God to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee? And why did they do that? Remember, they've been, a, they've been in this locked room, probably the upper room, and Jesus has now appeared to them twice. This is the third time Jesus is about to appear. So if they were in this locked room and Jesus had walked through the walls and appeared to them, and, and then not only did he did it once, but he did it twice, why would you leave the place Jesus keeps showing up? All right, let's, let's zoom back off our text. I'm going to go through three, maybe four passages quickly. Um, I'm not going to turn there, but you can write them down if you'd like. Matthew 26, excuse me, 32. Matthew 26, 32 says, but after I have risen, who's talking? Jesus. I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Okay, note number one. Note number two. The angel was speaking to Mary of Magdala and the other women outside the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 7. Matthew 28, 7. And the angel says, then go quickly and tell his disciples. So he's telling Mary to go tell the disciples. He has risen from the dead. Who's he? Jesus. And he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Okay, Matthew 28, verse 10. Now this is now Jesus speaking to Mary of Magdala and a group of uh, women. Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, I, I just can't help but pointing out, and you can go back and listen to my Mary of Magdala sermon if you want, but I love that Jesus spoke first to a woman and a group of women. Just saying, Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to, guess where? Galilee, there uh, they will see me. And then this is uh, in Mark 16, verse 7, the angel appeared to Mary of Magdala and the other women and said, but go tell the disciples and Peter. And what what had Peter done? Denied Jesus. That's right. You can go back and listen to it if you like. He is going ahead of you. Who is he? Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay. So back to Jerusalem. Uh, The guys are hiding in the upper room. Uh, My vernacular is they've got furniture piled against the door. They're shivering. They're scared. Jesus walks into the room. He calls them to be bold and courageous and actually to go out. Then uh, Thomas, who has been dubbed Doubting Thomas, but I think was Truthful Thomas, wasn't present. Truthful Thomas is present with them again. Jesus walks back through the walls um, and encourages Truthful Thomas to stop doubting and start believing. And then somewhere, when we don't know exactly where or when, but these guys decide to stop hiding and shivering in the dark. Okay. And then they decide to unlock the door and move the furniture and open the door. And what are they going to do? I wonder, I would have loved to be one of the guys sitting there when one of them said, didn't Jesus say, go back to Galilee? And didn't he tell Mary? And then, you know, the, then the angel told Mary and Jesus told Mary to go to Galilee. And I would guess they had a little council meeting and they all went, yeah, who remembers Jesus saying that? Well, we all remember. Okay. Then we all heard Mary say, and then Mary said that the angel said, and Mary said that Jesus said, so what should we do? Go to Galilee. Okay. So point number one here is how do I know if I am in the will of God? It's very simple. Are you obeying? Are you obeying? So if these guys at some point would have chosen to sit locked in this room in Jerusalem, would they have been in obedience or disobedience? Disobedience. Would they have been in the will of God? No. So at some point they had a meeting. They remembered the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's probably bringing it to their memory. We're going to go to Galilee. So they make a decision in accordance with what God has spoken to a number of different people that they are going to actively go um, to Galilee because they believe that Jesus is going to meet them there. Now, um, <clears throat> how do you know you're in the will of God? You obey the word of the Lord. Now, this is complex. I'm not going to f- go fully into it, but the word of the Lord um, is here. We just read it. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. that's right, so this is this is the word. Now, where else? Uh, When you surrender your life to Jesus, um, when you give your heart to Jesus, where else does the Word then live? In where? So if you're in Jesus, say with me, in me. Okay, so you have the word, then you have the person of Jesus, and what we're about to see as we head into um, Acts is that the person of Jesus actually ascends back into heaven, um, and we'll talk about why in the world that had to happen, it's very interesting, um, but then the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Jesus. Okay, there's three parts to our God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all one. So the Spirit of Jesus, also known as the Holy Spirit, is then released. So if the Holy Spirit is living inside of me and inside of you, if you're in Jesus, or if you prefer, the Spirit of Jesus is living inside of me and inside of you, can the Holy Spirit of God whisper or speak to our hearts and direct us? Yes, yes. And that is like so important because there are, um, there are groups of people, I don't mean to be critical, but my job is to actually pastor you as a group of people. There are groups of people who would so elevate the word of God that they would deny the direct and immediate revelation of God into your heart. Okay. There are also groups of people who get so far out into the direct and immediate revelation of God in their heart and they go around and sling things like God said and God said and God told Mubba, that they fail to subject what they are calling the word of God into the foundation of the Word of God. You follow me? So I believe the most accurate way to walk with this holy living God is to recognize that the Bible, um, I wish I could like put this down and stand on it, uh, but the Bible becomes the thing on which you stand. It becomes the riverbed in which your life is cradled. And the infilling power of the Spirit of Jesus, who is the Word, is now living inside of you. And that is what flows through this riverbed. Does that make sense? So you cannot actually um, function fully without both the word and the spirit. You follow me? So this is a, it is an absolute imperative. And people who are slinging over here, God said, and God said, I'm always like, show me that in the word, help me see that, dig in a little bit more, like give it to me again. I'm like what? And then the people over here, I'm going, how can you live without the infilling power and direct and immediate revelation of a holy God? You follow me? We're a Word and Spirit church. Does the Holy Spirit lead us? Yes. Are we a Word church? Yes. Okay. There we go. All right, so... um, at some point, the Holy Spirit of God uh, testifies to these men. They decide to get up. They go on this multiple-day journey back to Galilee. Now, we don't know where they're staying in Galilee. Peter had a a house um, at a little city in Capernaum um, in Galilee. They could have been staying there. John and James also had the house they grew up in with their parents um, in a place called Bethsaida. So there's lots of homes that they could have gone to. These guys uh, came from the area of Galilee, many of them. Jesus spent 18 months, months of his three years of ministry in this area of Galilee. So it was like, it was very, very familiar to them. People would have known them. The crowds would have known them. So they go back, um, to Galilee. Okay. Let's keep going. How do we know if I am in the will of God? You obey him. Number one, you obey him. Both the direct and immediate word and the word eternal. Yes. Okay. Keep rolling. Um, I'm in verse, uh, so verse three, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. A lot of people say here that he's in disobedience. I don't think he is. I'm just going to tell you, I don't think he is. I think he's just doing the next thing. And we'll talk about that. And they said, we'll go with you. Now, Peter has just done what to Jesus? Jesus. Denied him. Now this is purely Michael. I can't prove this, but was Jerusalem in a full-on ruckus because of um, Jesus' ministry and then his death and then his resurrection? Yes. So would Peter, being Jesus' right hand, that would people um, in the streets of Jerusalem know Peter? Yes. Would he have been a bit of a, like uh, Peter and John? Would they have been like, um, you know, like, I don't know, um, not famous, but would they have been well known? Yes. So would also probably people, both Christian and non-Christian, uh, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, could they have known and talked about that Peter actually denied Christ? Yes. So is it then possible that as, Jesus, as, as Peter at times is rolling down the streets of Jerusalem, whatever he's doing, shopping, buying, getting food, making food, talking to people, that there could have been both believer, or, or Jews and Gentiles um, who could have actually poked fun at him? I believe so. So I would even, in my mind's eye, I see things like somebody rolling down with Peter and somebody goes, <laughs> and everybody stops and, Why? Because Peter said he believed Jesus, and yet in the ninth inning, when everything got serious, what did he do? So I think he has been made fun of. He's been harassed. um, He is embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's under the weight of his own sin. And yet, go back to verse three, I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, what'd they say? Oh, we're going with you. Undisputed leader. Undisputed leader right here. Peter says, I'm going to fish. They said, we're going with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Sounds like me and my flounder stories. Okay, verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called to them, friends, um, let's see, this word means like children, lads, boys, it's, it's not disrespectful, um, but, but he's saying friends or boys, lads, haven't you caught any fish? Now, I don't think Jesus is poking fun at them, but I do think Jesus is um, pointing out something that anything they do. And again, I don't think they were in disobedience here to go fish, but anything they do out from the full infilling power of God under the call of God is going to fall what? Flat. It's going to fail. So I think Jesus is taking a moment here to merely point out, you've been fishing all night. And now remember, back in Luke 5, I'm not going to cross-reference it, but it's worth you making a note and actually reading on your own time. Back in Luke 5, um, the disciples, Peter and James and John, were actually out with a number of other people. And they'd been fishing all night at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. And they came up, anybody know? Empty-handed, they'd caught nothing all night, and Jesus actually gets into Peter's boat, pushes off from the shore, teaches for a little bit, and then he comes back in. Meanwhile, Peter and John, and they've all cleaned their nets. So once you clean all the fishiness off your nets, guess what you don't want to do? Get them dirty again. And Jesus says, hey, go back out into deeper water, cast out your nets, and you'll catch many fish. And they do, and guess what happens? They catch so many fish, the nets tear And there's this beautiful dialogue between Jesus um, and Peter where Peter goes, I'm a sinful man, depart from me. And Jesus actually looks at Peter and looks at John and looks at James and a couple of other ones and says, from now on, I will make you fishers of men. Come and follow me. Okay, so. Now, back to it. We have, a uh, again, this full parallel, full circle moment. They're back uh, looking at the shore of Galilee. Um, typically, these guys, they have this tunic, they have an outer cloak, and they have this, like, um, loincloth thing, for lack of a better word. Um, and typically, the fishermen would have pulled off all their outer cloaks, um, and they would have just fished in their, um, like, this loincloth wrap thing. And they probably would have been wet. Um, it's cold in Israel, so they probably would have been cold. They would have been fished all night. So they're frustrated. They're grumpy. They haven't slept. um, They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're cold and they're wet. Okay. So he calls out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? Have you ever walked up to a dock and yelled that at a fisherman? What do you think's going to happen? Hey, you didn't catch anything, huh? Okay. Y'all fill that blank. No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And there's this moment, I believe, of this, are we going to obey, again, back to my first point, how do I know if I'm in the will of God? Am I going to listen? Am I going to listen? There's there's two ways to sort of look at this. Um, If you ever show up on somebody's fishing boat, I got to go um, halibut fishing in Alaska, Um, but if you ever show up on a, if I showed up on that boat and tried to tell the captain how to fish for halibut, how do you think it would have gone? He'd have thro- I mean, I. I kid you not. He'd have thrown me overboard. A surly Alaskan fisher. I mean, he. They would. They would have thrown me overboard. Get off my boat. Don't ever. Now, so that's one way you look at this because Jesus says, Throw your nets out on the right side of the boat, and they're going, We've been throwing it out all night. Why is switching sides going to do anything? They've turned it on the right, they've turned it on the left, they've done both. Now here we are. We're tired, we're, we're cold, we're hungry, we're wet. Why are we going to listen to you? And there's this cataclysmic moment where it's like, Are they going to obey the direct and immediate revelation of God? Now, the other way that I can see this is if you've ever seen people actually fishing with a huge net, there is an element where there can be a spotter who who actually sees the fish and he directs the net person to then throw the net? Okay, sometimes when you're down by the water, the glare on the water is such that you can't see the fish. So it's possible that they interpret it this way. But but here's the larger point. In this moment, does obeying God feel good? We're hot, hungry. We are cold, we are wet, we might be shivering because it was probably 48 or 52 degrees that night. We've been fishing all night long. We haven't speared anything, we haven't caught anything. Jesus has left us. He walked through two walls and showed up to us and we were kind of happy for a minute, but we're all bewildered because we don't know what in the world we're doing next. We've all left our careers, we've left our houses, we've left all of our families, we've given everything for the sake of Christ and now we're absolutely wandering around lost in Galilee like what in the world do we do next? And we found ourselves on a fishing boat and now we're cold and we're stuck stuck and we're sitting here. And then some strange guy shows up on the land and says, throw it out on the other side. And what do you think you want to say? I'm going to pick up something from the boat and like, I mean, come on, go there a second. Like we, we, we so separate these people from being human. Do I think the direct and immediate revelation of God in your life and my life comes and looks the same way? Yes. If I'm absolutely transparent and vulnerable, what I find is when God directs me most specifically, I resist most fiercely. I do not know why. It is part of my carnal nature. I can't wait until I cross through the shroud into eternity when I am set totally free from that and in full accordance with his will and way. But I live, as do you, in the tension of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. And like it or not, there is some remaining sin in Michael Mattis and in your heart. So when the direct and immediate revelation of God comes, so long as it fits within the, um, the bedrock or the riverbed of the word of God, you and I then have a responsibility to do what? Obey. For me, this happens like I'm standing in the checkout line and I get a little nudge that I need to like talk to the person or pray for the person over next to me. And guess what I usually feel like? Nyeh. Don't want to do it. And I decide to wrestle with who? Now look, The reason I'm even being transparent and open is because you have got to recognize and I have got to recognize if you want to live a life that is consistently under the holy overshadowing of God and consistently in the will of God, you will consistently find yourselves at these crossroads where you don't want to do what he's saying to do. And the question is, in this moment, these seven guys are on the boat grumbling. I guarantee you they were using their version of cuss words. And they're all sitting there. That's Michael's opinion. And they're all grumpy and angry. And this guy's telling them. And they're like, "Ah, what do we have to lose? And what do they do? Throw it out on the right side. Okay, let's keep going. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. I only have one experience. In 1999, I got to Sane for salmon on the Prince William Sound in Alaska. Incredible, incredible time. Um, The boat must have been 50 or 60 feet long. It had this little tiny, they called it a jitney boat, but they would spot the salmon, and then the big boat would go one way, and the little boat would go the other way, and there's a pile of net that's like about up to the the curtain there, Um, and it's dangerous. If you get your foot or your arm in the net, guess where you're going? into the drink so they would uh, circle up this big um, uh, school of salmon and then it would pull all the net and it would actually lift it up and then we would deck load it onto the boat and we filled up the hold that particular day and then we actually filled up the entire deck so I wasn't quite waisty, but I was thigh deep in pink salmon about this big I've never seen anything like it So here they are, they're unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, now who is this? I love John, who wrote this book we're reading? Okay, so John is the one. I love John because John is the one who is, uh, always has taken a step back, is listening, is watching, is waiting, is thoughtful. And all of a sudden, John sees this number of fish. And I can only believe with everything in him that he is immediately in his mind, transported back to this moment on a very similar spot on the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus said to go back out into the boats after they cleaned the nets. And they did. And there was so many fish that the nets started breaking. And so John now is in this moment where they're pulling the net in and all of a sudden it is so full of fish he is going, oh, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And I love this next moment because you get John and he says, the disciple whom Jesus loves said to Peter, and you get this idea, I get this idea that it's this quiet, like it's not yelling, it's not even boisterous, it's just this, it is the Lord. And this holy awe and sort of reverence, I think, falls on this little boat, falls on John, falls on Peter. And then I love what's next. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wraps his outer garment around him, uh, for he had taken it off, and he jumps into the water. This is so characteristic of both John and Peter. So when John gets a direct and immediate revelation from God, what's he do? He's going to quietly stand back. He's going to watch. He's going to think. Even his gospel is written from this like very high level of theology and thought. And then you have Peter. It's the Lord. Now, what has Peter just done? We just reviewed it. He denied Christ once. Three times. I believe, this is my belief, that he is under shame. He's under guilt. Uh, he may be slightly depressed. He feels like he's betrayed his friend. Remember, Peter was the one who was like, hey, all these guys might desert you, but I'm going to go with you to to Jerusalem. And even if it means death, I'm going to go with you to death. And then in the face of it, when push comes to shove, when Peter's standing there and this little slave girl looks at him and says, weren't you one of the disciples? What's he say? Not once, not twice, but three times. So I'm convinced that Peter is under the weight um, of his own sin. And now, when Jesus walked through the walls, we've read two passages. Jesus walked through the walls and talked to the disciples minus Thomas. And then he walked through the walls and talked to all the disciples with Thomas. Does he ever address Peter in either of those two scenarios? Okay, so has Peter's guilt and shame most likely been fully resolved yet? No. Okay. So Peter is living in his own sort of mess, his guilt, his shame, um, and and he sees uh, it is the Lord. Now, let me pause right there. Number one, how do I know how do I know if I'm in the will of God? Obey. Now, number two, and I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back up um, when Peter says I am going to fish. So that's how they even got into this scenario and into this situation. I'm going to propose something to you. In the absence of the direct and clear revelation of God, do the next thing. Do the next right thing. Right? If you don't know what to do, what are you gonna do? In other words, some days I get up and I have to come to uh Roland Grice and I have to preach and I don't like feel emotionally close to God. What's the next right thing? Step out in faith, open my word, preach about the one I love, share my heart out, ask that the presence and power of God would come and dwell in us as we all preach and share together. You follow me? I don't feel like going to work today. I don't feel like being kind, gracious, and serving my spouse or my kids today. I don't feel like being nice or encouraging or edifying to my neighbor today. In the in the lack of the direct and immediate revelation of God, do the next right thing. Therefore, my opinion is: Was Peter right or within keeping of what God would allow in terms of His will to take those guys fishing? My opinion is yes. Uh, I'm not going to turn here, but if you want to make a note, First Samuel ten seven. It's First Samuel ten seven. That's Old Testament. Um, There's a a prophet named Samuel who's talking to a guy named Saul who's going to be king. And here's what he says. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. There's something powerful, I think, as people when you can go, Lord, I think this is you. I'm here waiting for you. I know I'm supposed to be in Galilee. And you know what? I'm going to go fish. Whatever your fishing is, fill in the blank. Okay, so number one, how do we obey the will of God? Or how do we know if we're in the will of God? We obey. Number two, how do I know if I'm in the will of God? Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Number three, how do I know if I am in the will of God? Here it is. Trust God to author and change the desires of your heart and direct your path let me say that again. Number three, how do I know if I am in the will of God? Trust God to author and change the desires of your heart and direct your path. Okay. That's called faith. That's called risk. Lord, I think this is you. Lord, I think we're supposed to go. I think we're supposed to move here. I think we're supposed to, you fill in the blank, but whatever it is, you, you, uh, you do, uh, you trust him to author your heart. Now here's what I mean. Do I think God is going to give you direct and immediate revelation about what to wear tomorrow? No. Do I think God is going to give you, but could he? Yeah? Uh, Do I think God is going to give you direct and immediate revelation on where you should go out to eat? Not usually, but could he? Okay. Um, Do I think that God could uh, call you to go speak to someone or go to a different city or move to a different place? Yes, so this question then sort of becomes um, when, you, when the moment of decision comes. So let me I'm just open my own heart up here for just a minute. Um, a couple years ago, Abby and I sold one house and moved to another house. We never heard clearly this is the right move, but we went, Lord, we think this is you. It's our desire, and as we surrender our hearts and lives to you, we're trusting that you're going to align our desires with your heart and you're going to direct our path. That's how you walk with God. Number one, how do you know if I'm in the? How do you know if you're in the will of God? You obey. Number two, how do you know if you're in the will of God? You do the next right thing. Number three, how do I know if I'm in the will of God? You trust God to author and change the desires of your heart and to direct your path. Actively uh, surrendering, knowing that you're actively surrendering to Him. Okay, let's keep going. Um, I am back down in verse eight. So, end of verse seven, uh, Peter jumps in the water. Mm, um, Let me say something here. Um, uh, Number four, how do I know I am in the will of God? Um, It's your heart posture. What do I mean by that? Um, I tend—I don't know if this is good or bad, right or wrong—but I tend to think of my heart like, um, like a loaf of bread. It's kind of funny. Um, have you ever had really good fresh-baked bread? It's usually what—soft, warm, tasty. Maybe you put some butter on it, right, my, I come from. My grandfather was a baker. You know, so we love bread. Um, so when bread gets old, what happens? It gets crusty gets stale it gets hard it turns into like a cracker now um just all cards on the table on any given day any given moment i can kind of tell you that my heart is like fresh baked wonderful bread soft warm tender to the things of god or crunchy stale i had a moment like this yesterday and i looked at abby and said i'm just grumpy today i'm not really sure why will you talk to me a second and pray with me our pastor gets grumpy, our pastor has a stale day, Listen, people, This is, what I'm telling you is you are you are not going to be perfect. You're going to have stale, crusty, crunchy days where your heart is hardened towards the things of God. And the question is, by and large, as you journey, if you want to stay in the will of God, can you go to him in those moments, not deny them, not act like they're not there, not up your religious performance or, you know, start some religious talk, but rather acknowledge what's really there and go, Lord Jesus, would you give me that new heart? And I did it again. I just had this moment. I never did figure out why. I just had a grumpy day. You ever have a grumpy day? Stop lying to me. <laughs> okay. So uh, how do you know if you're in the will of God? Um, number four, your heart posture. So do I think that Christ Jesus would have shown up powerfully to meet Peter and John if their hearts weren't towards to, turned towards him? Woo. If Peter and John... In this moment, he's commissioning them to the ministry that they're going to have on planet Earth. If uh, their hearts were not postured towards him in a good way, would he have probably turned up towards them? In this moment, I don't think so. Now, I could also take you through the Scripture and show you places where people are hardened against him. I could tell you stories of my own life where my heart's been hard, and God, by his grace, shows up. Okay? Okay? So, how do I know if I'm in the will of God? Number four, my heart is postured towards Him. What does that mean? Is it about your agenda or His agenda? Is it about your will or His will? Is it about your way or His way? Uh, is it about your victory or His victory? I mean, all you got to do is ask yourself a few questions. And if you don't know the state of your heart, ask your spouse. I guarantee it. Abby will tell me every time. And guess what happens if she asks me? Ask your roommate. Ask somebody you trust. Wayne, I don't see my own heart today. Would you help me? And begin talking about it, and guess what's going to come out? Why do we get in small groups? Because you can't do this journey alone. You cannot do the Jesus journey by yourself in a vacuum. You must do it alongside other believers. Okay, now, my next point, I want to go back to reading because the next point is really important. So, Peter. Um, He wraps his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off. He jumps into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. Now, where is Peter living? Somebody remind me. Shame, guilt, failure, Um, I'm never going to succeed at what God called me to do. He's probably given up on me and left. Like his self-talk is probably terrible in this moment. Possibly depression, possibly anxiety, possibly ugliness towards himself. And what does he do when Jesus shows up? He puts his clothes on and jumps where? Where? Okay, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit finds itself in your life, what you do in that moment is probably the best indicator as to whether or not your life is largely in the will of God. So what does Peter do in this moment when he falls and he recognizes that Jesus is there? Runs toward him. You hear me? Many of us, when the and it's because of how we're raised, it's because of the church, it's because of our experiences, but when the convicting power of God falls upon us, instead of running towards Jesus like Simon Peter, what do we do? I mean, come on, go there a second. How much time do we as Christians spend hiding our sin, denying our sin, not talking about our sin, not being authentic, not being open, acting all pompous and religious like we got all our mess together. And yet what does Peter do? He's undignified, he puts his clothes on, he risks everything, it's cold, he's shivering, he's hungry, and he's like, my Jesus, I'm all in. I have gotta go to you. It is the life of Jesus that is gonna set me free from my own guilt and my own shame and my own self-loathing. And there's Jesus and I gotta have some you hear me? I mean, like he jumps out of the boat. He is going to, he is moving to the person of Jesus. Now, listen, I will, you, I talk about my five-year journal all the time. In that five-year journal, I am oftentimes asking for the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my own life. Father, would you convict me about whatever it is? Father, would you show me about whatever it is? Because when the power of God falls on your life to convict you of something, it's an invitation towards greater intimacy and connection with the Holy God of the universe. And in that moment, if we can become a people who will go towards Jesus and not run away from Jesus, what we will find is that we will be fully, not only reinstated, which we're going to talk about in the next time we gather, where Peter is fully reinstated, but we find forgiveness, and we find hope, and we find grace, and we find that our sin is covered, and we find that all our brokenness gets made new, and we find that we're raised up to life with Christ, and all the things we've hated are all of a sudden uh, made totally new, and we become something special in the person of Jesus because he's in us. I mean, that's what the gospel is all about. That's why we come to church. That is what it means to walk with King Jesus. So number five, how do I know if I'm in the will of God? Your response to the pursuit of Jesus. Did Peter pursue Jesus first here? No. Jesus showed up, issued an invitation, cast out your They obeyed, and then what's Peter do? Responds. So God is always the initiator, but the question that that you have control over and I have control over is how are we going to respond to the initiation of a holy God? Does that make sense? How do you know if you're in the will of God? Your response to the pursuit of Jesus. It's a heart test. Jesus is always at the center. Um, Everything is oriented, oriented around the person of Jesus. I would also say here, because I think this is important, a lot of Christians get into this. What are you doing? I'm waiting on God. I'm waiting on God. What are you doing? Just waiting on God. I can find very few times where people are accurately waiting on God. There's a a time in uh, in Acts. But I think Jesus here is waiting on who? The disciples. Peter. Peter. John. He is waiting on them. John's heart posture. So Peter jumps in. He swims ashore. shore. What's John do? Paddles that boat in. What do the other disciples do? They're all moving towards Jesus. Peter was the most gregarious or outgoing about it, but they all move in towards Jesus. <clears throat> Verse eight, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. You get the idea they couldn't even pull the fish in. There were so many. Verse nine, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. I don't have time to go into this today, but if you want to make a note in your Bible, circle burning coals and write down John eighteen eighteen. There's only two spots that I can find in the entire New Testament that you get a charcoal fire or a fire of burning coals. One is where Peter denied Jesus and the second is where peter or is where jesus reinstates peter So as Peter comes up out of the water, he's cold, he's tired, he's hungry. And as he comes out, what he sees is a fire. And the last time he warmed himself around a fire was when Jesus was being crucified and he denied Christ. And so Christ has set up this scenario all over again where the smells he smells, the smoke and the charcoal and the warmth he feels and the Jesus he sees are this same full experience coming all the way back around just like it was when he denied Jesus. And Jesus is now, we're not gonna get to it today but it's about to reinstate Peter it's such a like powerful mind-boggling moment the other disciples followed on the boat towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Jesus has made a fire. Jesus is roasting fish. He has made bread. Is Jesus a ghost? No. Is he a figment of their imagination? No. There's some things that we don't even need to fully go into, but you need to understand that the gospel writers were refuting that this was a hallucination. Hallucinations don't bake bread. Hallucinations don't bake fish. Hallucinations don't make fires. Ghosts don't prepare dinner. You, you hear what I'm saying? So there's like this, there's some substance to this writing that we're not going to fully open. Um, but but they, he is, John is refuting some things just by the way he is looking at this. And then Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. And Simon Peter climbed back aboard and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 Um uh, I'm not going to sit here, but here's the deal. Um, There's so many theories about this 153. There's so many theories. The only one that I like is by a guy named Jerome, an early church father and writer. And he basically says, there's 153 fish in the Sea of Galilee, species of fish. One of each species of fish was caught. And it's indicative of the worldwide impact and calling, the multi-ethnic and multicultural view of the way the body of Christ is and should be. Make sense? But even with so many, the net was not torn. Now go back to what I told you about Luke 5. What happened to the net? Torn. Interesting little parallel there. Uh, Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Um, Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish, which we're about to do, by the way. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, in this moment, I believe there is a holy overshadowing or a holy awe, um, a holy wonder that falls over the disciples because they come ashore and Jesus begins to break fresh bread and hand it to them, and he begins to break um, this fish that has been cooking over the fire, and they take a one or two of their fish and put them onto the coals to begin to cook, and he's handing out food, and it's like nothing is said because this moment of Holy wonder has fallen over the disciples, and they are sitting there going, This is the risen King Jesus. And he has called us, boys, young men, lads, and they are. John was probably 15 years old at this point. John the Beloved, the youngest of them. He has called us to go and tell the world about the life and the love of Jesus. He is real and he is alive. At the end of the Bible, Revelation three twenty, John also writes, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will eat with me. And here's what I'm convinced of when john wrote that revelation 320 talking about jesus at the door he was thinking of this moment when jesus was standing at the door knocking at their hearts inviting them to come in from the sea and actually eat with him around this fire to break bread to break fish and i imagine that, that what is happening inside of these men as they're sitting around this fire as they're going we just sat in an upper room with this man and he broke bread and he said do this in remembrance of me and he poured out his this wine that was uh, like the blood of Christ. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And now he's called them in and he's reinstating them because they all gave up on Jesus except for John and ran away. And he's circling them back in and he's inviting them into full friendship and relationship with Jesus. So how do you know that you're in the will of God? Number six, you're eating with him. You're opening the doors of your heart. You're welcoming him in to eat with you and you with him. You're learning to abide in the presence and power of King Jesus moment by moment, day by day, not in some religious weird way, but in an ongoing, vibrant, alive way where you are allowing him to come in and live inside of you, dwelling in you and living in you. Okay, worship team, y'all come on back out here. I'm going to review this and then we're going to break bread together like Jesus just broke bread in our passage. How do you know you're in the will of God? Number one, you're obedient to the word of the Lord. How do you know if you're in the will of God? You do the next right thing. How do you know if you're in the will of God? You're surrendering your heart and life to him and trusting him to change your heart and direct your path. Number four, how do you know you're in the will of God? Your heart posture is waiting and responsive to his pursuit. How do you know you're in the will of God? Number five, instead of running and hiding when he convicts, you run towards. Number six, how do you know you're in the will of God? You're eating with Jesus, progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, every time you do this, breaking bread and eating it, do it in remembrance of me, meaning his death, his resurrection, and his life. And then he took a cup or a pitcher of wine. We have grape juice this morning and he poured it out, and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Every time you do this, take it into yourself in remembrance of me. Father, would you take these common elements and Father, would you use them to infuse a church with your person, your spirit, your will, and your way. Father, I pray that as we break bread and as we drink this juice together today, that it would not be a drinking unto our failure, what we've done, what we've not done. It would not be a navel gazing, but rather it would be a drinking and an eating unto the celebration of the finished work of King Jesus on the cross, liberating us and setting us free and calling us then to go and become fishers of men and women and children. Father, I pray that as we share this meal together, that the resurrection of King Jesus would be fully released in every man and every woman and every young person that takes it today. And Father, for every person that's in this room or joining us online that's never surrendered their heart and life to you, I pray this would be launchpad for them. Father, we look to you. And Father, I pray that as we take this, that symbolically we would be a church today that is putting on our cloak and jumping into the water, running to your person, running to your presence. In the name of jesus we pray amen ushers if you'll come forward we're going to have three stations Uh, as you guys uh, just stay seated for just a minute but as you come what i'm going to have you do is going to have you stand and everyone is going to exit their row this way and you're going to go down around the front and then come back into your seat hold the elements i will say a final prayer and we will eat them together Uh, this This section, there's going to be a group in front of you. You can come right out, go to them. This section, you're going to come to this middle area. And this section, you're going to come over here to Tony and looks like Susan. Are you going to direct us row by row? Don's going to direct us and Scott's going to direct us row by row. Let's worship the Lord as you come and then hold the elements and we'll take them together.
1: would not pay
0: Father, as we take this communion, Father, I pray in our hearts the simplicity of the disciples sitting around that fire being commissioned would be the same simplicity that would rule and reign in our hearts, hearing your voice, sensing the warmth of your presence. Father, as we take eating and drinking, would you fill us with your person? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, let's eat and drink, remembering his death, his resurrection, and his life. As you go today, may you go under the revelation that Jesus is standing on the shore, beckoning you home, always beckoning you home, beckoning you come to eat with him, to abide with him, to know him, to be known by him, to carry his mission, to carry his will, to carry his way. And may we be a people that always moves towards him and not away. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.